Hello and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hello, Lauren. Ooh, ooh. Your runs are so, they're like Christina Aguilera level. Thank you. Well, I mean, we're both from Pittsburgh, so. What? Another Pittsburgh (laughs) connection? Of course. Get the hell out of here. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) They're everywhere. I don't know, I'm just feeling feeling inspired today. Oh, that's Feeling musically inspired. Are you feeling musically inspired? Well, I'm so glad you are. Um, And you know what? A little bit I am too. Uh, Because today, uh, my topic, uh, funny you should... (laughs) funny you should mention this it's not like we ever talk about our our topics beforehand or even talk to each other or outside of recording right oh sorry sorry me 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 there it is that's what i'm looking for that's what i'm looking for gorgeous um Uh, today i'm going to be talking about uh something that i am not super familiar with so opera fans please you know, please be gentle with me. Um, but today I'm going to be talking about La Divina Maria Callas. Now, Lauren, I, before yes. we even start, I think that the, that the Venn diagram of opera fans and mm-hmm. misinformation podcast <laughs> listeners, I would dare say they don't necessarily meet in the middle. See, here's the thing. I'm not discounting anything because I didn't think that we had anybody outside of mm, the Rochester area, let alone New York State, let alone outside this country who would listen to this podcast. But we get emails from like people from Australia, which as far as I'm concerned, is a completely different planet because their their weather is different. (laughs) We are the number five games podcast in Mauritius. I'm yeah, not even exactly. joking. Like I like like I'm not joking. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're huge in Mauritius. They should they should build a small monument to us with a couple of statues of us, like kind of gently rendered. That's what I'm looking for. Or at least we can go visit. Get a free trip. <laughs> yeah, we can get a free trip to Mauritius. I mean, there are worse places for sure. I'm sure. I know very little about Mauritius. You know, what we should do. We should do an episode on Mauritius. <laughs> to really pander to our biggest <laughs> to our biggest <laughs> country of listeners. Hello, Hello Mauritius. Hello, Mauritius. <laughs> Hello, Mauritius. We appreciate you. Um, <laughs> actually, you know what? I want to look up where Mauritius is. Hold on. Hold on. I want well, to it's a country Mauritius. of Africa. The capital okay. city is Port Louis, I believe. Okay. Okay. It's in East Africa. Okay. I can see it. Yeah. Indian Ocean Island nation known mm-hmm. for its beaches, lagoons, and reefs. That sounds gorgeous. <gasps> I'm looking at pictures. They have an underwater waterfall. Oh my god, this place looks lush. All right, we're going to Mauritius. What are we talking <laughs> about we... today? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Speaking of island nations, actually, no, this mm. is, that's not true at all. Okay, so Maria Callas. She she was. A very famous opera singer in the mid 20th century. Um, she was called La Divina, as in like the ultimate diva. Uh, she had a very like strong personality and had kind of a reputation for being a little bit 
of uh, a diva in the in the negative sense, mm-hmm. which we will get to. Um, but <clears throat> Maria Callas was Greek. The name on her New York birth certificate is Sophie Cecilia Kalos, although she was christened Maria Anna Cecilia Sophia Kalagapros. Callas' uh, father had shortened the surname of Kalagapros first to Kalos and then subsequently to Callas to make it more manageable. Mm, okay. So her parents were not happy people. They were kind of ill-matched from the beginning, and it caused a lot of stress in the family life. Um, their names were George and Litsa. Uh, George was kind of easygoing. He was unambitious. He didn't really have any interest in the arts. However, Litsa was vivacious. She was socially ambitious, and she had always dreamed of a life in the arts, um, which her middle-class parents had stifled in her childhood and youth. So, of course... She wanted to really, like, pour all of those ambitions into her children. Um, Their situation was aggravated by George's philandering and was uh, improved neither by the birth of a daughter named Yakinthi, later called Jackie, in 1917, nor the birth of a son named Vasilis in 1920. And unfortunately, Vasilis's death from meningitis in the summer of 1922 dealt another blow to the family. So in 1923, after realizing that Lisa was pregnant again, George made the decision to move his family to the U.S., um, which was a decision which Yakinthi recalled was greeted with Lisa shouting hysterically, followed by George slamming doors. Um, So moving from Greece to New York wasn't a easy transition, I guess. (laughs) A happy one. (laughs) Um, They left for New York in July of 1923, and they... first moved into an apartment in the heavily ethnic Greek neighborhood of Astoria, Queens. Um, Astoria, Queens still has excellent Greek restaurants. I highly recommend. Um, Lisa was convinced that her third child would be a boy. She was like, I'm having a boy. Hooray. A replacement for my darling Vasilis. It's going to be great. However, she was extremely disappointed to find uh, that she gave birth to another daughter. And her disappointment was so great that she refused to even look at her new baby for four whole days. Oh, Which is very real, sad. Real telling of how, I know. of how this story is going to play out, I think. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. For oh. sure. Now, personally, I don't understand. Like, I, I can understand being like, oh, you know, I've always wanted a girl or oh, I always wanted a boy. Sure. Like, people sometimes have, uh, you know, desires to have a certain kind of child. And it's understandable to feel disappointed. But taking that out on the child that you get is terrible and um, unfair. And also is just like a value judgment on your child's gender that doesn't need to happen. That's just my own personal opinion. (laughs) Like (laughs) hard-hitting opinions here on misinformation. You know what? And I welcome the Twitter arguments (laughs) about that. Um, So Maria who was the third child, was christened three years later at the Archdiocese Cathedral of the Holy Trinity in 1926. Um, and when she was four, George opened his own pharmacy and he settled the family in Manhattan in Washington Heights, where she she ultimately grew up. Um, around the age of three, Maria's mu- musical talent began to manifest itself. And after Lisa discovered that her youngest daughter also had a voice, she began pressing Mary to sing. So, when she was younger, she was called Mary for some reason. I don't know if it was like an anglicized okay. version mm-hmm. of Maria. So she was called Mary throughout her childhood and into her early teen years. Um, Callis later recalled, quote, I was made to sing when I was only five and I hated it. 
Uh, George was unhappy with his wife favoring their elder daughter, as well as the pressure put upon young Mary to sing and perform, while Lisa was increasingly embittered with George and his absences and his infidelity, and often violently reviled him in front of their children. Uh, the marriage continued to deteriorate, and then in 1937, Lisa decided to return to Athens with her two daughters. Um, so she took the kids and left, and George stayed in New York. Um, so Maria Callas' relationship with her mother continued to erode during the years in Greece, and in the prime of her career, it became a matter of great public interest, especially after a 1956 cover story in Time magazine, which focused on this relationship, and later by Lietze's book called My Daughter Maria Callas, which was published in 1960. Um, in public, Callas recalls the strained relationship with Lietze on her unhappy childhood spent singing and working at her mother's insistence. She said, quote, my sister was slim and beautiful and friendly, and my mother always preferred her. I was the ugly duckling, fat and clumsy and unpopular. It is a cruel thing to make a child feel ugly and unwanted. I'll never forgive her for taking my childhood away. During all the years I should have been playing and growing up, I was singing or making money. Everything I did for them was mostly good, and everything they did to me was mostly bad. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of tragic. Um, in 1957, she told Chicago radio host Norman Ross Jr., quote, there must be a law against forcing children to perform at an early age. Children should have a wonderful childhood. They should not be given too much responsibility. Uh, so biographer Nicholas Petsalas Diomedes said that Lietze's hateful treatment of George in front of their young children led to resentment and dislike on Callis's part. According to both Callis's husband and then her close friend Giulietta Simonato, uh, Callis related to them that her mother, who did not work, pressed her to, quote, go out with various men, mainly Italian and German soldiers, to bring home money and food during the Axis occupation of Greece during World War II. Oof. Yes, you have a look on your face. It is exactly what you're thinking. Uh, Simeonato was convinced that Callis managed to remain untouched, but Callis never forgave her mother for what she perceived as a kind of prostitution forced on her. Mm -hmm. Lisa herself, beginning in New York and continuing in Athens, had adopted a questionable lifestyle that included not only pushing her daughters into degrading situations to support her financially, but also entertaining Italian and German soldiers herself during the Axis occupation. In an attempt to patch things up with her mother, Callis later took Lisa along on her first visit to Mexico in 1950, but this only reawakened old frictions and resentments, and after leaving Mexico, they never spoke to each other again. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, after a series of angry and accusatory letters from Lietze lambasting Callis' father and husband, Callis ceased communication with her mother altogether. So fairly, you know, early in her career, she was like, I'm never speaking to you again. Understandable. So Maria Callis received her musical education in Athens. Um, initially, her mother tried to enroll her at the prestigious Athens Conservatory without success. Um, but in the summer of 37, her mother visited Maria Trevella at the Younger Greek National Conservatory, asking her to take Mary, again, as she was then called, as a student for a modest fee. Um, in 57, Trevella recalled her impression of Mary as a very plump young girl wearing big glasses for her myopia. <laughs> um, something to mention, uh, Maria Callas had terrible nearsightedness. She could not see um, without her glasses, but she refused to perform wearing either glasses or contact lenses. Sure. So she would go out onto stage completely blind, unable to see the conductor, unable to really see the set. So she would go out before performances, like when, if she was new to the set in the, her, the early stages of, 
you know, a performance, mm-hmm. she would make sure to map it out in her mind so that she wouldn't like fall or bump into things oh or whatever. Yeah. So not only was she an incredible singer and musician, she could not see the conductor. So she couldn't, she didn't know her cues. So she would, <laughs> so she, so she couldn't look for her cues. So she had to know her cues instinctively and she could not see, she could not see anything on stage with her. So that's something to really think about as you're thinking about her you know, career as it goes through. Um, so Maria Travella agreed to tutor her. Um, she completely waived her tuition fees, but no sooner had Calla started her formal lesson and vocal exercises that Travella began to feel that Callis was not a contralto, as she had been told, but a dramatic soprano. Mm-hmm. So a contralto, for those who don't know, is the... In, in classical singing is the lowest tone, is the lowest like vocal range for women mm-hmm. um, in singing. And uh, s- soprano is uh, on the end of the highest, as you can imagine. Uh, and a dramatic soprano is just a descriptive term for a soprano who can sing very loudly and very expressively and really hit, you know, like the phrasing in a song and that kind of thing. So that's what a dramatic soprano is. So they began working on the raising the tessaratura of her voice and to lighten its timbre. What does that mean? Who's to say? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so Travella recalled Callis as a model student, fanatical, uncompromising, dedicated to her studies, heart and soul. Her progress was phenomenal. She studied five or six hours a day. Within six months, she was seeing the most difficult arias in the international opera repertoire with the utmost musicality. And how old is she around this time? Uh, so this is like, hmm, this is probably like 1937. So like a teenager. So she's a teenager at this point. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so with both Travella and this coloratura soprano Elvira de Hidalgo, um, who was uh, a soprano who kind of took Callis under her wing, um, she learned the technique of bel canto. So bel canto is a historic style of Italian opera singing that's, Kind of hard to define even now, but it translates to beautiful singing. And to be totally reductive, it's associated with beautiful melodies, silvery voices, and floods of rapid notes curling their way up and down the scale, sometimes only loosely around the framework of what the composer actually wrote. It's also supposed to be the quintessential way to sing opera. Um, There were several Italian um, opera composers and librettists who wrote music and wrote operas in the bel canto style, um, which we'll mention in a second. So um, her career actually began in earnest in August of 1947 when she appeared in Verona in La Gioconda. So soon after the, under the tutoring of conductor and director of the famed Italian opera house La Scala, uh, the director's name was Tullio Serafine. She made debuts in Venice, Turin, and Florence. And in 1949, she first appeared in Rome, Buenos Aires, and Naples, and in 1950 in Mexico City, where she met with her mother, and ultimately they decided to kind of go their separate ways. So her powerful soprano voice, which was capable of sustaining both lyric and coloratura roles, was very, very dramatic. And this, combined with her strong sense of theater and her scrupulously high artistic standards, it took her quickly to the forefront of contemporary opera talent. So the idea is that she... The reason why she became so famous so quickly and because she was so um, just kind of revered in in the opera world was because not only did she have an extraordinarily powerful voice, but she had a, a really wide range for a soprano 
And she had an incredible stage presence. She also had this incredible face. She had such a great face, like big, giant almond eyes and like tiny, beautiful little features and really strong, like facial expressions. And she was just gorgeous. So she was really interesting to not only listen to, but also to watch. Um, and so she was, she became kind of the doyen of opera during mm -hmm. this time. So her abilities made possible the revival of 19th century bel canto works, notably those of Vincenzo Bellini and Gaetano Donizetti that had long been dropped from standard repertoire. So she kind of revived bel canto oh, for the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So upon her arrival in Verona, Callis met Giovanni Battista Meneghini. Uh, he is an older, wealthy industrialist, and he began courting her. Um, they married in 1949, and he assumed control of her career until 59 when the marriage dissolved. It was Meneghini's love and support that gave her the time needed to kind of establish herself in Italy. And throughout the prime of her career, she went by the name of uh, Maria Meneghini Callas. So the great turning point in her career occurred in Venice in 49. So she was engaged to sing the role of Brunhilde in Die Valkur at the Teatro La Fenice when Margarita Carosio, who was engaged to sing Elvira in Bellini's E Puritani in the same theater, fell ill. Uh, unable to find a replacement for Corosio, Seraphine told Callus that she would be singing Elvira in six days. He didn't say like, hey, could you step in for Margarita because she's so sick. He was like, you're singing this part in six days. In addition to uh, the other part? Oh, yeah. Oh. She said, she said, I don't, she didn't even know the role. She was like, I don't know this role. And she's like, I also have three more Brunhildas to sing. Oh, my gosh. This, like this, yeah. you know, period. And he told her, I guarantee that you can. So, <clears throat> founder of the London Opera Society, Michael Scott's words, uh, said he said, the notion of any one singer embracing music as divergent in its vocal demands as Wagner's Brunhilde and Bellini's Elvira in the same career would have been cause enough for surprise. <laughs> but to attempt to assay them both in the same season seems like a folly de grandeur. So, this was insane. And of course, she totally nailed it. And the opera was a hit. And Scott asserts that of all the many roles Callis undertook, it is doubtful that any others had any more re far-reaching effect. So this initial foray into the bel canto repertoire changed the course of her career and set her on a path leading to operas such as Lucia de Lammermoor, La Triviata, Armida, La Sonambula, Il Parato, Il Turco in Italia, Medea, and Anna Bolena and reawakened interest in the long-neglected operas of Cherubini, Bellini, Donizetti, and Rossini. A lot of Italians in there. But these were all bel canto opera composers yeah. and librettists. So her Metropolitan Opera debut, which opened the Met's 72nd season on October 29, 1956, was with Bellini's Norma, but was preceded by an unflattering cover story in Time magazine, the, re the aforementioned... Uh, you know, article that rehashed all of the callous cliches, including her temper, her supposed rivalry with Renata Telbaldi, which we'll get to in a second, and of course, her difficult relationship with her mother. So, you know, this woman couldn't just have like her moment in the spotlight. They also had to kind of, you know, hmm. spread a little bit of gossip about her at the same time. Okay. So we have to briefly talk about her infamous weight loss. Okay. So in the early years of her career, she was, quote, a heavy woman. In her own words, she said, heavy, one can say, yes, I was, but I'm also a tall woman, five, eight and a half, and I used to weigh no more than 200 pounds. 
1968, Callis told music critic Edward Downs that during her initial performance in Cherubini's Medea in May 1953, she realized that she needed a leaner face and figure to do dramatic justice to this as well as the other roles that she was undertaking. So during 1953 and early 54, she lost almost 80 pounds. Wow. Yeah, turning herself into what was called possibly the most beautiful lady on stage, which, like, all right. Um, <laughs> Sir Rudolph Bing. <laughs> so Sir Rudolph Bing, who was also another opera singer and was kind of like a frenemy of hers, um, he remembered Callis as being, quote, monstrously fat. In 1951, uh, after the weight loss, Callis was, quote, an astonishing, svelte, striking woman who showed none of the signs one usually finds in a fat woman who has lost weight. Oh my! She God. looked as though she had been born to that slender and graceful figure and has always moved with that elegance. So there were various rumors that were spread regarding her weight loss method. One had her swallowing a tapeworm. Uh. Uh, Rome's Panatella Mills Pasta Company claimed she lost weight by eating their physiologic pasta. Uh, which prompted Callis to actually file a lawsuit against the company. <laughs> um, she has always said that she lost the weight by eating a sensible, low-calorie diet of mainly salads and chicken, which, I mean, whatever. Some believe that the loss of body mass actually made it more difficult for her to support her voice, mm. which triggered the vocal strain that had become apparent later in the decade, while others believe that weight loss uh, affected a newfound softness and femininity in her voice, as well as a greater confidence as a person and performer, which just goes to show that a woman can't do anything right in the public eye. Like, oh, she's too skinny now. Her voice sounds terrible. Or like, you know, she's too fat to sing, like that kind of thing. So right. her voice ultimately was and remains controversial. Um, it bothered and disturbed as many people as it thrilled and inspired. <laughs> uh, classical music producer Walter Legg said that Callis possessed that most essential ingredient for a great singer, which is an instantly recognizable voice. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Nicola Rossi Lamini relates that Callis's mentor Seraphine used to refer to her as una grande vocaccia. Uh, una grande vocaccia is a little bit pejorative. It means ugly voice or or um, a gr like a grand, like noisy voice. Okay. <clears throat> you know, grand means a big voice, and and vocaccia means like ugly or noisy. So it was this combination of like a great ugly voice in a way. <clears throat> Callis herself, she actually didn't like the sound of her own voice. Um, in one of her last interviews, um, she was asked whether or not she was able to listen to her own recordings. And she said, yes, but I don't like it. Um, I have to do it, but I don't like it at all because I don't like the kind of voice I have. Mm. I really hate listening to myself. The first time I listened to a recording of my singing was when we were recording San Giovanna Battista by Stradella in a church in Perugia in 1949. They made me listen to the tape and I cried my eyes out. I wanted to stop everything, to give up singing. Also now, even though I don't like my voice, I've become able to accept it and be detached and objective about it so I can say, oh, that was really well sung or it was nearly perfect. So she already had like a love-hate relationship with her body. And she also clearly had a very love-hate relationship with her voice as well, which was the thing that, like, made her who she was in the public eye. Um, so her voice has actually been difficult to place in the modern vocal classification or the FOC system or the FOTCH system. Probably not FOTCH. Um, <laughs> opera people, shoot me a... Classical music people, shoot me a message on Twitter. <laughs> Um, especially since in her prime, her repertoire contained the heaviest dramatic soprano roles, as well as roles usually undertaken by the highest, lightest, and most agile coloratura sopranos. 
So regarding this versatility, Seraphine said, this woman can sing anything written for the female voice. She really could sing any, especially in her prime, she could sing anything. Now, um, so you said, so she had bad eyesight, but like she would wear her glasses when she had to like learn music, right? Like she, like oh, she was yeah. like reading her music and things. She wasn't just yeah. like, play it for me and I will <laughs> blindly no, no. remember everything. Okay. No, she, she definitely like, she could sight read, which is part of like early on when she was doing like auditions mm-hmm. for, um, for composers and, and directors and that kind of thing. She would sight read, no problem. She was actually, a, and I'll get to this in a second, but she was um her musicality was flawless um but she she ultimately was kind of vain so i think that's why she refused to wear glasses or contact lenses on stage she wanted to just seem like oh like this is just my face and this is just my body yeah exactly um so it should be mentioned that as an opera singer she was controversial in that she was often disregarded as merely an actress because she was a good actress and because her voice was this you know una grande vocaccia that she was just an actress who happened to be able to sing. Um, but she considered herself first and foremost a musician, as in the first instrument in the orchestra. So her musicality and her technical prowess has been described as extraordinary, almost frightening. Huh. Yeah. So she was, like, extremely, like, competent on the music end, as well as a very strong singer. So during the early 1950s, there was an alleged rivalry between Callas and Renata Tibaldi, who is an Italian lyrical spinto soprano. Um, the contrast between Callas's often unconventional vocal qualities and Tibaldi's classically beautiful sound resurrected an argument as old as opera itself, namely beauty of sound versus the expressive use of sound. The more I did research on Maria Callas and like just kind of dipping my toe into opera in general, it seems like, like opera critique is a lot like wine critique where there is some like there are some things you can point to and be like this is true and this is not true kind of thing okay but a lot of it is very like subjective like well this to me tastes this way you know what i mean like this tastes muddy to me or like i'm really getting lemon in this or whatever like especially the more like granular things that not everybody can taste and i feel like that's what it is like with opera. There's a little bit of a subjectivity that's hmm, that's kind of interesting in that, you know, some people might love the sound and some people might hate it. And, you know, they're both right on some level because it's a lot of it has to do with just like your opinion. Um, but that's just, again, my opinion. So in 1951, Tibaldi and Maria Callas were jointly booked for a vocal recital in Rio de Janeiro. Um, and although the singers agreed that neither would perform encores, Tibaldi took two. Oh. <laughs> uh, and Callis was reportedly incensed. So this incident began their rivalry, which reached a <laughs> fever pitch in the 50s, uh, at times even engulfing the two women themselves, who were said by their more fanatical followers to have engaged in verbal barbs in each other's direction. And of course, like their fans just ate Eat this up. up. So Tibaldi was quoted as saying, I have one thing that Callis doesn't have, a heart. Yeah, snide. While Callis was quoted in Time magazine as saying that comparing her with Tibaldi was like comparing champagne with cognac. No, with Coca-Cola. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, it should be said that witnesses to the interview stated that Callis had said only champagne with cognac and that it was a bystander who had quipped no with Coca-Cola. <laughs> um, nevertheless, obviously, the Time reporter attributed the latter comment to Callis. 
And honestly, like in hindsight, you couldn't even compare the two. They sang so differently that they shared very few roles anyway. So they weren't really rivals in that sense. And so most of the supposed rivalry was more the fans than the women themselves, which, I mean, if you go on Reddit or on Twitter, that's something that's just ubiquitous Uh in entertainment anyway. And actually later in their careers, they had lovely things to say about each other. So there's that. So in the opinion of several singers, the heavy roles undertaken in her early years damaged her Callis' voice. Um, the mezzo-soprano Giulietta Simonato, Callis' close friend and frequent colleague, stated that she told Callis that she felt that the early heavy roles led to a weakness in the diaphragm and subsequent difficulty in controlling her upper register. Uh, Luis Casalotti, who worked with Callis in 1946 and 47 prior to Italian debut, felt that it was not the heavy roles that hurt her voice, but the lighter ones Several singers have suggested that her heavy use of the chest voice led to kind of a stridency and unsteadiness with the high notes. And in his book, who, you know, of course, Callis's husband also wrote a book about her, <laughs> um, wrote that she suffered an unusually early onset of menopause, which could have affected her voice. Some uh, insider Car- info there. Yeah, there you go. Uh, soprano Carol Neblett once said, quote, a woman sings with her ovaries. You're only as good as your hormones, which, I mean, I don't know about singing, but... She's not wrong about that. <laughs> um, so critic Henry Pleasance has stated that it was a loss of physical strength and breath support that led to her vocal problems, saying singing and especially opera singing requires physical strength. Without it, the singer's respiratory functions can no longer support the steady emissions of breath essential to sustaining the production of a focused tone. The breath escapes, but is no longer the power behind the tone or it is only partially and or intermittently. The result is a breathy sound, tolerable but hardly beautiful when the singer sings lightly and a voice spreads and squally when under pressure. Um, In the same vein, Joan Sutherland, who heard Callis throughout the 1950s, said in a BBC interview, uh, hearing Callis and Norma in 1952 was a shock, a wonderful shock. You just got shivers up and down the spine. It was a bigger sound in those earlier performances before she lost weight. I think she tried very hard to recreate the sort of fatness of the sound which she had when she was as fat as she was. But when she lost the weight, she couldn't seem to sustain the great sound that she had made, and the body seemed to be too frail to support that sound that she was making. Oh, but it was oh so exciting. It was thrilling. I don't think that anyone who heard Callis after 1955 really heard the Callis voice. So, like, no one knows why her vocal decline happened. It may have just been like, I don't know, she smoked a lot of cigarettes. Who knows? (laughs) But no one knows if it was due to ill health, early menopause, overuse and abuse of her voice, loss loss of breast support, loss of confidence or weight loss. It'll be debated until the cows come home. But whatever the cause may be, her singing career was effectively over at age 40. And even at the time of her death at 53, according to Walter Legg, she ought still to have been singing magnificently, but she wasn't. Um, Unfortunately, the latter half of her career was marked by a number of scandals. Uh, Following a performance of Madame Butterfly in Chicago in 55, she was confronted by a process server who handed her papers about a lawsuit brought by Eddie Baragosi, who claimed that he was her agent. Um, She was photographed with her mouth turned into like this furious snarl, like she's going to punch this guy in the back of his head. And it's a really famous photo of her. And she looks like she looks like she's going to murder him. It's a great photo of her. I mean, she looks gorgeous, but the photo was sent around the world and it gave rise to the myth of Callis as a temperamental prima donna and a quote tigress. Um, And in the same year, just before her debut at the Metropolitan Opera, Time ran uh, this damaging cover story about her um, and, like, really recounted these 
unpleasant exchanges between her and her mother. Which, like, it's, the, the, like, Time Magazine, not the Daily Mail. I know, right? Like, Time, get out of there. Which is, well, it's because she's an opera singer, so it's, like, it lends itself an air, I guess, of, like, sophistication, oh, even gosh. though they're like, did you hear that she hates her mother? Like, <laughs> please. Um, so in her final years as a singer, she's sang in Medea, Norma, and Tosca, most notably her Paris, New York, and London Toscas of January, February 1964, and her last performance on stage on July 5th, 1965 at Covent Garden. So in 69, the Italian filmmaker uh, Pierpaolo Palosini cast Callis in her only non-apparatic acting role as the Greek mythological character of Medea in his film by that name. Uh, the production was grueling, and according to the account in Arduin's Callus, The Art, The Life, uh, Callus is said to have fainted after a day of strenuous running back and forth on a mud flat in the sun. Um, the film was not a commercial success, but as Callus's only film appearance, it documents her stage presence at the very least. So that is the only thing that she has ever appeared in outside of, you know, the op opera stage. Wow. Uh, from October 1971 to 72, she gave a series of master classes at the Juilliard School in New York. Um, these classes actually later formed the basis of Terence McNally's 1995 play called Master Class. Um, she also staged a series of joint recitals in Europe in 73 and in the U.S., South Korea, and Japan in 74 with the tenor Giuseppe Distafano. And critically, this was a musical disaster um, because... Both performers had completely worn out their voices, mm. but the tour was hugely popular. Audiences lined up to hear the two performers who had so often appeared together in their prime. Um, and her final public performance was on November 11th, 1974 in Sapporo, Japan. Um, Callis and DeStefano were to have appeared together in four stage performances of Tosca in Japan in late 75, but Callis canceled. Um, she was also, I mean, she was temperamental because she knew what she wanted to do. And she was smart and an excellent musician. So you couldn't get around her. And a lot of people didn't like that. And she was mm, opinionated and Greek and Mediterranean, whatever kind of thing you want to throw at her. Um, but she did really, she kind of earned her kind of diva behavior because of her abilities. Um, but she did, especially later in her career, because she was so exhausted, um, canceled a lot of performances, sometimes even like in the middle of a performance. And, you know, the, the, the press would run these kind of, you know, shady things like they would, you know, show a video of her practicing from an earlier rehearsal. And they would say, you know, if you want to see Maria Callas perform the entire show, then you should probably come to rehearsal because she showed up to rehearsal. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> it was just like nasty little barbs like that that didn't mean anything. Um. But I should mention, in 57, while she was still married to her husband, uh, Callis was introduced to Greek millionaire Aristotle Onassis yeah. at a party in her honor by Elsa Maxwell after a performance in Donizetti's Anabolena. Uh, the affair that followed received much publicity in the popular press, and in November 1959, Callis left her husband. Um, uh, Onassis was not sure why Callis largely abandoned her career, but he offered her a way out of a career that was made increasingly difficult by scandals mm -hmm. and by vocal resources that were diminishing. Um, Franco Zeffirelli, on the other hand, recalls asking Callis in 63 why she had not practiced her singing, and Callis responded that, I have been trying to fulfill my life as a woman, which, fair, you know. Um, according to one of her biographers, uh, Nicholas Gage, Callis and Onassis had a child, a boy who died hours after he was born on March 30th, 1960. 
Um, in his book about his wife, uh, Meneghini states categorically that Maria Callas was unable to bear children. Uh, various sources also dismiss his claim, uh, Gage's claim, as they note that the birth certificate Gage used to prove this, you know, secret child was issued in 1998, which was actually 21 years after Callas's death. Hmm. Um, there are still other sources that claim that Callas had at least one abortion while involved with Onassis. Either way, in 66, Callas renounced her U.S. citizenship at the American Embassy in Paris to facilitate the end of her marriage to Meneghini. Um, this was because after her renunciation, she was only a Greek citizen, and under Greek law at the time, a Greek could legally marry only in a Greek Orthodox church. Because she married in a Roman Catholic church, the, this divorced her in Greece, I guess. And this actually also helped her finances as she no longer had to pay U.S. taxes on her income. So it was kind of smart. Um, her relationship with Onassis ended two years later in 68 when Onassis left Callis for Jackie Kennedy. However, the Onassis family's private secretary, whose name was Kiki, <laughs> writes in her memoir <laughs> that even while Aristotle was with Jackie, he frequently met with Maria in Paris where they resumed what had now become a clandestine affair. So Jackie could not get a break. Like, Jackie O could not get a break with the men in her life. Whatever. Callis spent her last years living largely in isolation in Paris, and she died of a heart attack at age 53 on September 16th, 1977. Uh, during a 1978 interview, upon being asked, was it worth it to be Maria Callis? She was lonely, unhappy, often a difficult woman. Music critic and Callis's friend, John Arduin, replied in part, I don't think she always understood what she did or why she did it. She knew she had a tremendous effect on audiences and on people, but it was not something she could always live with gracefully or happily. I once said to her, it must be very enviable to be Maria Callas. And she said, no, it's a very terrible thing to be Maria Callas because it's a question of trying to understand something you can never really understand. Because she couldn't explain what she did. It was all done by instinct. It was something incredibly embedded deep within her. So it was this sense of, um, like, throughout her life, you get this sense of that she she didn't really love being an opera singer. It, was, mm -hmm. it felt like it was something that she had to do, that it was like something that drove her. And I don't know if it was something to do with like her mother pressuring her into mm -hmm. singing because she had a natural ability or what. But um, Leonard Bernstein called her the Bible of opera. Oh, <laughs> uh, which is that's pretty. Words. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Yves Saint Laurent, in his typical French way, said of her, diva of divas, empress, queen, goddess, sorceress, hardworking magician, in short, divine, devastator, explosive, nightingale, turtle dove. She passed through the century like a great solitary eagle whose outspread wings have concealed from us forever those who will outlive her. So just a nice, short, you know, not too dramatic <laughs> eulogy for our girl Maria. Um, so yeah, that was my topic on Maria Callas. She seemed like, I mean, she seemed like not, not an easy person to be around. Um, I will be playing like a little bit of her singing for our thinking music today mm -hmm. because it's just so beautiful. I think objectively, whether you like opera or not, you can really, um, grasp how enormously talented she was and how her range of, right. of singing was like so incredible. So, yeah. I think I knew, um, one, I knew about the Aristotle and NASA, so I was waiting for oh, that yeah. to come up. Um, I knew that she had a reputation, mm -hmm. but I guess mm -hmm. I, 
I don't know. Maybe I just don't. <laughs> this is me admitting this. I don't know enough about opera. I think I just assume she was like always at the Met. I don't know. Or like always at La Scala. Like here, yeah. and here's where Maria Callas lives. And now she's going to be in this show. Like I guess I didn't realize how frequently she would like travel around or like be mm-hmm. in productions in different locations, um, which is yeah. an interesting way to see the world, of course. Yeah. And La Scala, I should mention, is like the the premier opera house of Italy. Like La Scala is absolutely peak, you know, opera. And that was her home basically okay. for a while. Um, she that was where like she was in residence. She the Italians really consider her one of their own kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, even though she was Greek. So she's really like highly revered even still today in, in Italy. Um, but she had a tempestuous relationship with the director and manager there too. So she would have a falling out with them and then she would go travel the world and, you know, sing, you know, Medea all over the place. And then she would, you know, make it up with them and come back and, you know, have her like grand debut again and that kind of thing. But yeah, La Scala was basically like her home base kind of thing. Well, so yeah. thank you, Lauren. Bravissimo. Oh, thank you. Ooh, ooh thank you. I feel, mm, I feel your, your warmth and your applause. Um, but we're so, not going to do two encores tonight. No, we're not doing two encores. I am not Renata Tilbaldi. Um, I'm not that nasty. <laughs> so uh, today's quiz, though, is about famous Greek people. Question number one. We talked a little about that cad, Aristotle Onassis, who definitely was famous for the women he was with, but also because he was super rich. What was the business that garnered him his millions? Question number two. This musician was recently given quite a bit of attention thanks to a Hulu series based on his very infamous marriage to an extremely infamous blonde bombshell. We won't mention the talking genitalia. This is a family show. What metal band guy am I talking about? Question number three. Domenicos Theotokopoulos was a 16th century painter, sculptor, and architect of the Spanish Renaissance. Born in Crete, he spent the majority of his career in Toledo, Spain, where he lived and worked until his death. Despite the fact that he always signed his work with his full birth name in Greek letters, he is best known today by his Spanish nickname, the translation of which isn't especially creative. What artist am I referring to? Question number four. Ilya Kazan, born Elias Kazantoglu, was an American film and theater director, producer, and screenwriter who co-founded the Actors Studio and introduced method acting to American actors, for better or for worse. One of his favorite actors to work with was a fan of this method, using it under Kazan's direction in A Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront. Who is this masculine actor? Question number five. This ancient Greek poet is not one of the characters in one of your husband's favorite shows, but rather the reputed author of the Iliad and the Odyssey and is regarded as one of the greatest and most influential authors of all time. Who is this poet? Question number six. This actor and comedian was not born between two ferns, but rather to second generation Greeks from Crete. He has been featured in many A-list films and has featured in over 40 movies and TV shows throughout his career. Who is this funny Greek? Question number seven. This funny lady might have shark eyes, but her Mediterranean looks can be attributed to her mother, born Zenobia Zanakis from Piraeus, Greece. 
Additionally, her real middle name is not Mirvaldis, but Stamatina. Who is this writer and actress? Question number eight. This ancient engineer, astronomer, mathematician, inventor, and physicist was from Syracuse, the Sicilian city, not the one in upstate New York. His achievements include deriving an approximation of pi, defining and investigating the spiral that now bears his name, and devising a system using exponentation for expressing very large numbers. He was also one of the first to apply mathematics to physical phenomena, founding hydrostatics and statics. His achievements in this area include a proof of the principle of the lever, the widespread use of the concept of center of gravity, and the enunciation of the law of buoyancy. Also, a crater on the moon is named after him. Who is this very smart Greek? Question number nine. This handsome bald actor is best known for playing hot baddies in the 90s and early 2000s, as well as the titular Phantom in the not well-received comic book film The Phantom in 1996. However, you probably best know him for threatening Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet with a gun. Who is this actor? And finally, question number 10. Get your Us Weekly thinking cap on, because here's a blast from the past. What was the name of Paris Hilton's Greek shipping air fiancé? They got engaged in 2005 at peak The Simple Life fame, and she probably liked him best because of his familiar first name. We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. I don't know any um, Greek words other than opa to, <laughs> to welcome this. This quiz? This quiz. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I know opa and I know eureka. Eureka is a Greek ah, word. Ah, eureka is good. I'll try yeah, to use I think, that one in here. I think I mentioned like in a very early episode of our podcast that ancient Greek they discovered was tonal, was a oh. tonal language. So they had, I was listening to the radio, I think it was NPR or whatever, and they were like, oh, they just recently discovered that Greek is a total language. Here is so-and-so, professor of, of ancient Greek from Yale, demonstrating that. And he was like, blah, blah, blah. Like, it was like, it they was like, like singing. singing it? Yeah, it's so wild. I like started cracking, started cracking up in spite of myself. But yeah, apparently ancient Greek was a tonal language, which is so interesting to think about. <laughs> and it seems even harder to learn and now that I'm, you know, thinking about it because tonal languages are just like so anathema to us as English speakers, but um, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> there will not be an upcoming episode on ancient Greek language. Um, question number one. We talked a little about that cad, Aristotle Onassis, who definitely was famous for the women he was with, but also because he was super rich. What was the business that garnered him his millions? Must be a shipping magnet. 
he was, he was often described as a, quote, Greek shipping magnate who amassed the world's largest privately owned shipping fleet and was one of the world's richest and most famous men. He married Jackie O in 68. Um, unfortunately, he had a son, Alexander, who was very young. I think he was like 24, who died in a plane crash in 1973, <laughs> which they think what like, like garnered his early death, I guess, because he mm. died only two years later. Um, Onassis's daughter, Christina, made it clear that she really hated Jackie O. And after Alexander's death, she convinced her father that Jackie had some kind of curse due to the assassinations of John and Robert F. Kennedy. No. And so after Onassis's death, Christina settled with Jackie for $25 million in exchange for Jackie not contesting his will. So, <laughs> like, she basically preyed upon his, you know, his uh, superstition. But Boy. what are you going to do? Okay, question number two. This musician was recently given quite a bit of attention thanks to a Hulu series based on his very infamous marriage to an extremely infamous blonde bombshell. We won't mention the talking genitalia. This is a family show. What metal band guy am I talking about? Okay, that's Tommy Lee. It is Tommy and Lee. And I originally wrote Tommy Lee Jones, which is would you be a, which, a very different TV series. <laughs> that would be a very different TV series for sure. That would be a very that would be a deeply weird that would be a much weirder, surprisingly, TV series than what has already been shown on the on the television. Um Tommy Lee was born Thomas Lee Bass in Athens, Greece, to a father, David Lee Thomas Bass, who was an American US Army sergeant and a mother. Vasiliki Vula Papadimitriou, a contestant on the 1957 Miss Greece Beauty Contest. That's that is the Greekest. It's name a pretty I've Greek heard. name, Vasiliki yeah. Papadimitriou. Um, he has a younger sister whose name is Athena, as you can imagine. Um, she is also a drummer. So, yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Okay, question number three. Domenicos Titocapolos was a 16th century painter, sculptor, and architect of the Spanish Renaissance. Born in Crete, he spent the majority of his career in Toledo, Spain, where he lived and worked until his death. And despite the fact that he always signed his work with his full birth name in Greek letters, he is best known today by his Spanish nickname, the translation of which isn't especially creative. What artist am I referring to? It is El Greco. It is El Greco. Not only would he sign his work with his full birth name in Greek letters, but he would also add at the end sometimes in Greek letters from Crete. But people still, <laughs> they'd be like, my name is Domenicos Theotokopoulos from Crete. And people would be like, you mean El Greco? Get out of here. Uh, um, it, was a, so it was a lot shorter to say. It was a lot shorter, that's for sure. Um, his dramatic and expressionistic style was met with puzzlement by his contemporaries, but found appreciation in the 20th century. Um, he's regarded as a precursor of both expressionism and cubism. Um, while his personality and his poetry were a source of inspiration for poets and writers such as Rainier Maria Rilke. Um, he has been characterized by modern scholars as an artist so individual that he belongs to no conventional school, and he is best known for torturously elongated figures and often fantastic or phantasmagorical pigmentation, marrying Byzantine traditions with those of Western painting. I personally am not a huge fan of El Greco. He has this really weird, like, gray, cool palette and these weird, like, wobbly, attenuated figures that I'm just not into. Um, but they do have, like, a weird modernity to them that's um, interesting to see. All right, question number four. Ilya Kazan was an American film and theater director, producer, and screenwriter who co-founded the Actors Studio and introduced method acting to American actors, for better or for worse. One of his favorite actors to work with was a fan of this method, using it under Kazan's direction in A Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront. Who is this masculine actor? That was Marlon Brando. 
it was Marlon Brando. So a turning point in Kazan's career came with his testimony as a witness before the House Committee on Un-American Activities in 1952 at the time of the Hollywood Blacklist, which brought him strong negative reactions from many friends and colleagues, as you can imagine. His testimony helped end the careers of former acting colleagues Morris Konarvsky and Art Smith, along with the works of playwright Clifford Odets. Oh, so he tattled? He tattled. Oh, yes. Actually, Kazan and Odets apparently had made a pact to name each other in front of the committee, which I don't understand. Like, there was no explanation to that. Kazan later justified his act by saying he took only the more tolerable of two alternatives that were either way painful and wrong. Nearly a half century later, his anti-communist testimony continued to cause controversy. When Kazan was awarded an honorary Oscar in 1999, dozens of actors chose not to applaud as 250 demonstrators picketed the event. So long memories in Hollywood from that. All right. Question number five. This ancient Greek poet is not one of the characters in one of your husband's favorite shows, but rather the reputed author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, and is regarded as one of the greatest and most influential authors of all time. Who is this poet? It's Homer. It is Homer. Um, The question of by whom, when, where, and under what circumstances the Iliad and the Odyssey were composed continues to be debated by scholars. (laughs) Um, some consider the two works were written by different authors. Um, many accounts of Homer's life circulated in classical antiquity, the most widespread being that he was a blind bard from Ionia. Um, uh, but modern scholars consider these accounts to be just legendary. That's probably not true. So, uh, question number six. This actor and comedian was not born between two ferns, but rather to second generation Greeks from Crete. He had been featured in many A-list films and has featured in over 40 movies and TV shows throughout his career. Who is this funny Greek? That is Zach Galifianakis. It is Zach Galifianakis. Um, So, funny story. After his television debut, Galifianakis joined Saturday Night Live for two weeks. (laughs) Uh, He has stated, quote, I worked on a Saturday Night Live for two weeks and Britney Spears was the host one week when I was doing it. I wrote a sketch. Uh, Will Ferrell was going to play a bodyguard to her belly button, and we were going to shrink Will down to fit into a belly button. She just stared at me after I explained it to her, and then she finally goes, yeah, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Fine. I don't care. Whatever. Free Britney. (laughs) She's pregnant, by the way. Congratulations, Brit Brit. We're so happy for you. Uh (laughs) Lauren, she does not listen to this podcast. (laughs) How dare you crush We've talked to a lot like of that. celebrities through this podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> Britney Spears is not one of them. That's true. <laughs> All right. Question number seven. This funny lady might have shark eyes, but her Mediterranean looks can be attributed to her mother, born Zenobia Zanakis from Piraeus, Greece. Additionally, her real middle name is not Miravaldis, but Stamatina. Who is this writer and actress? You had me at shark eyes. Uh, <laughs> Tina Fey. Yes, Tina Fey. To this day, I know that you and I can both quote 30 Rocket Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt word for word. (laughs) I remember watching it so, 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 so often. Um, I have noticed, especially with Zoom and everything in the pandemic, that I, too, have been afflicted with shark eyes. (laughs) So I think that's why I wear so much eye makeup, because otherwise they're just black doll size staring out from my weird visage. Anyway, (laughs) question number eight. This ancient engineer, astronomer, mathematician, inventor, and physicist was from Syracuse, the Sicilian city, not the one in upstate New York. 
His achievements include many things, deriving an approximation of pi, defining and investigating the spiral that now bears his name, devising a system using exponentation for expressing very large numbers. Also, a crater of the moon is named after him. Who is this very smart Greek? Okay, I wrote this down and crossed it out and then circled it again. Oh, okay. I think, I, I think I'm going to get this. Okay. Is it Archimedes? It is Archimedes. Good job. Yes. Um, I remember he- him from Square One, okay? Do you <gasps> remember Square One? The oh math show from PBS. Yes. There was a song about Archimedes. It was like, he solved the problems of our days. Using oh my God. Amazing ways. Archimedes. That unlocked something that was deep in my amygdala. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. Wow, I have to look that up. Yep. Um, anyway, you're right. Archimedes. You- he was the one who may or may not have cried Eureka while running through the Syracuse streets buck-ass naked because he just discovered water displacement in his bathtub. Um, <laughs> probably not true, but, you know, it's a good story. Um, question number nine. This handsome bald actor is best known for playing hot baddies in the 90s and early 2000s, as well as the titular Phantom in the not-well-received comic book film The Phantom in 1996. However, you probably best know him for threatening Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet with a gun. Who is this actor? I mean, I know him best for um, moderating the the walk off in Zoolander oh, between course. Derek Zoolander of and course. Hansel. Uh, that's <laughs> Billy Zane. It is Billy Zane. <laughs> I forgot all about that. Also, do you remember that his character name in Titanic was Caladon Hockley? I did not remember <laughs> any. Nope. A, that was such a stupid ass movie. Caladon. Yeah. Also, other character names in that movie include Brock Lovett. And Spicer Lovejoy. <laughs> Spicer Lovejoy. Yeah, these were characters. I was like looking at the cast. I was like, get the hell out of here. These were That's names. That's like these- an author. That's like a fake author name for romance novels. It really is. Spice Spicer Lovejoy. Like, it's very bad. Also, Did you get the latest Spicer Lovejoy? Oh my God, it's so good. It's You know what? The second book was so much sexier though. Um, It really, also thinking about Titanic really unlocked a memory for me. Like, I remember like, Okay, Titanic came out when I was in eighth grade or so, like seventh or eighth grade. And I remember there was this girl in my, uh, this girl in my middle school, her name was Melissa, God bless her. And she was like obsessed with Titanic. She had like the, the she got the t-shirt. Like, remember the big t-shirt with like their faces, with the, the yeah, giant faces on it? With the poster on it. Yeah, yeah, with the poster on it. She like, that was her cherished possession. She was also somebody who was like at 13, like really wanted a baby, like, Oh. talked about how badly she wanted a baby so badly and it was like even then it was like melissa you ain't right so like i you know what i hope melissa's doing okay right now <laughs> she's doing okay it was like the i mean i remember our math teacher made like an offhand reference to leonardo dicaprio and she literally screamed from the back of the room like just his name just made her like hysterical i hope she's all right okay yeah, she's all right too <laughs> i know All right, uh, question number 10. Get your Us Weekly thinking cap on because here's a blast from the past. What was the name of Paris Hilton's Greek shipping heir fiancé? They got engaged in 2005 at peak The Simple Life fame, and she probably liked him best because his familiar first name. Okay, first of all, thank you for that clue because the first name I wrote down was Stavros Nyarkos, which was another Greek shipping magnet who dated dated a lot of... of um, socialites, including mm-hmm, Pearson, mm-hmm. but um, same name that she was engaged to was Paris Latsis. Yes, the early 2000s was a wild time. It Speaking of true. Stavros Nierkos, his father or grandfather, the original Greek, you know, yeah. like millionaire Stavros Nierkos, 
He was from Buffalo. What? Yeah, he went to Narden Academy. Like, lived in Greece, and then his father took the family to Buffalo, where he opened up, like, a department store. And they lived there for a couple years, and he went to Narden, and then they moved back to Greece. Isn't that the wildest thing? It's These were wild times in the 20th century. I know, century. these are wild. <laughs> it's crazy. Also, the 1900s we just, were wild. We're nuts. Just a small world. Um, also, speaking of the early 2000s, we just recently watched the Von Dutch documentary. Have you seen that? It's a, it's terrible. I mean, it's not terrible. It's a good documentary, but you learn about like Von Dutch and like the origins of it. And like the guys who started it were like ex-cons and like gang members and like had like very violent pasts. And then they got a bunch of money and then they sold it to a guy and how Von Dutch was like literally everywhere. And it's so strange. It's a strange. And thing. then Steve wow. went upstairs and got his trucker hat collection out of the cupboard. <laughs> you know what? I was half expecting that to happen because Steve is a man who contains multitudes of secrets that I am still exploring here eight years later in our relationship. But uh, no, he did not. He did not have a, at least that not in that moment, he chose not to show me his, his trucker hat. Engineer Josh so. is shaking his head. No, he says, no. Oh, okay. So <laughs> if it's backed up by engineer Josh, then I believe it then. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that was my quiz. There are a lot Woo-hoo! of very famous Greeks and also uh, not for nothing, but the Greeks are very proud of being Greek. Extremely proud. Uh, Lauren, what's your favorite Greek food festival food? Oh, um, I really like, Ooh, those honey balls. Mm-hmm. Those are really tasty. I'll also eat, I mean, I'll eat, you know, a beef pita, you know, filled with feta cheese and salad and copious amounts of dressing. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. Oh, I like a spanakopita. Mm. I like a... Flaky. I like a lucamadis. Ooh, lucamadis. What about dolmades? Oh, huh? dolmades. Dolmades. Delicious. Oh, the Greek festival's coming up too. Yeah. And the next month, we're going to go. Exciting. Exciting. All right. Um, thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any <laughs> if you have any opera input, please what's send What's your them favorite my way. opera? <laughs> yeah, what's your favorite opera? Mine is Sweeney Todd. Um, <laughs> no, don't don't take that. No, that's a joke. Um, that's not an opera, right? No, it's not, because there's actually, like, speaking parts. Who knows what the definition of an opera is? No one knows. Um, so <laughs> Unknowable. Gloss over that. Okay. <laughs> no one heard me say that. No one listens to the show. Um, anyway, thank you for listening, Mauritius. Uh, we love you in your beautiful tropical country. And uh, we will catch you all next time. Goodbye. Bye.